The Bitcoin 2019 conference is next week in San Francisco, and we're going to be there. We really hope everyone can make it, and to prove that, we're offering $100 tickets with the promo code BMAG100. That's right. Go to Bitcoin2019conference.com now to get your tickets. Again, the code is BMAG100. Make sure you stop and say hi to Graham and I. We'll be hanging out at Podcast Row next to the entrance. Hope to see you there. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Graham. Today, we're bringing back on Dan Held to discuss his recent essay on Bitcoin security, as well as some infamous tweets and a recent trip he had to Munich, where he had the chance to discuss Bitcoin with a central banker. Ooh, a central banker. Exciting stuff. It's always fun having Dan on the show. Sure is. Anyway, that's coming up right after the news. Well, this Sunday was Father's Day, and if you're half the man I am, you at least called your father to say hello and maybe even thanked him for all those diapers he changed when you were a baby. Uh, right. (laughs) While many sons and daughters get their fathers a nice drill, maybe a golf club, or usually just a nice little card, many people don't tell their dads about Bitcoin and that it's not a Ponzi scheme. eToro, a brokerage company that offers Bitcoin services, made a very helpful dad-friendly infographic exclusively for Bitcoin Magazine that can help guide you through a hopefully not-so-awkward conversation with your father. Even though Father's Day has passed, give it a look. It's a great refresher, and it could come in handy the next time you're cornered at a family reunion. If and when your dad does decide it's time to invest in some Bitcoin, he may no longer be able to do so if he wants to do it through Binance. At least, that's if he's a U.S.-based dad. The cryptocurrency exchange's terms of service have been updated to indicate that it is unable to, quote, provide services to any U.S. person. This development may be the result of some security and compliance upgrades that Binance is going through following a $40 million hack in May. However, it also announced a new partnership with BAM Trading Services that will see the launch of Binance.us, a spinoff website. Not much is known yet about the spinoff site, but the initial site text appears to emphasize its compliance with U.S. regulations. Regulation aside, the vulnerability of centralized exchanges has been a common narrative since the beginning of 2019. In Bitcoin Magazine's most recent cover story, Colin Harper chronicles the shady lengths to which exchanges must go, whether by choice or necessity, to provide fiat currency to customers. Plenty of unanswered questions remain around Bitfinex and Quadriga CX's liquidity failings, but the common link between these exchanges is their use of the mysterious payment processor, Crypto Capital. Crypto Capital's client base of cryptocurrency exchanges is so vast that it has been referred to some as the central point of failure for the industry. If you dig even further, things get murky pretty quick. Who owns Crypto Capital? Where's the $850 million in Bitfinex's missing funds? And what can be done to prevent this from happening in the future? Well, we don't really know yet, but stay tuned, because we'll keep you posted. Dan Held is a co-founder and head of business development at Interchange. He's also been considered a rationalist, futurist, Texan, and most recently, a Bitcoin economist. But to start off, we wanted to go over his new essay on Bitcoin security, In it, Dan addresses the great fear around Bitcoin scarcity. As time goes on, miners will receive less reward for their work. Without higher transaction fees, this could mean Bitcoin miners would lose the incentive to participate. (music) 
Okay, so I spent some time digging into your article. Obviously, you're doing an extensive analysis of Bitcoin's security overall. But then in the last part, you sort of turned around and kind of did something else. And I want to dig into that. But first, can you just describe what drove you to write this essay? Yeah, that sounds like a good start. So there's a lot of individuals in the space, especially on the Ethereum side, uh, that have said, hey, you know, Bitcoiners criticize our monetary policy, but oh, look at look at Bitcoin. We don't know what's going to happen when the block subsidy runs out. Oh my God, it's the same thing. It's a false equivalency, but let's gloss over that. And so I, I found it really disingenuous and honestly intellectually dishonest. And then I started to dig into it and realized that their argument was predicated on a few papers done by, um, again, I... The, the assumptions that these researchers made at Princeton and Harvard were honestly negligent. Um, so, so their entire premise of Bitcoin becomes unstable or Bitcoin security becomes unstable when the block subsidy runs out or predicated on these few articles that were riddled full of terrible assumptions. And so once I had found that and once I started to ask around the community and I said, you know, hey, has anyone really looked at this? And I, I found that almost no one had. No one had really dived in all the way. Uh, Some people had touched on it. Some people had looked at this or that, but I wanted to kind of comprehensively cover it. And so that's why I wrote this was to at least get the conversation started around a rational framework for evaluating what might happen when Bitcoin's block subsidy runs out. So Dan, after, after you wrote this, what's your impression on Bitcoin security now? Yeah. So Bitcoin security is funded by the, essentially it's the mining revenue generated annually. So it's the, the amount of uh, investment that miners put into their equipment, because that represents the financial stake that they would lose if they were to meddle with the network by doing like a 51% attack, because they, they, they expend current costs, which is the CapEx to buy the equipment and OPEX of the electricity. And then they get a not guaranteed, but they get a certain percentage of future cash flows from mining, uh, mining operations. So the stability of the protocol uh, they're essentially financially incentivized via game theory to not mess with the organization and transaction validation. And can you explain it another way? <clears throat> Maybe an, another way to phrase this would be that Bitcoin's ledger is protected by game theory and physics. And Bitcoin uses proof of work to make changes to the ledger difficult, which eliminates trust and introduces an external cost for any would-be attacker. The miners that produce the proof of work by hardware and electricity with the expectation of receiving uh, a percentage of the block reward in the future, uh, which is representative of the proof of work that they put in or the essentially proof of work equals cost. And so uh, Bitcoin's network is provided by essentially the amount of money spent to protect the network to do proof of work. So you're saying Bitcoin security is built off game theory and physics. The game theory is proof of work and the physics is minor hardware and energy? Uh, I'd say the energy is the physics. Proof of work and energy is the physics. You know, proof of work validates that energy was spent. Okay. No other way to shortcut that. There is no way within the realm of physics to possibly for uh, like create a fake way to, to have utilized the energy. That's why Bitcoin's energy usage is efficient because there is no more efficient way to provably burn the energy. So you're building a wall of energy, essentially. And so the game theory behind it is more of the cash flows. 
So the miners, to build that, to, to provably burn that electricity, so rooting Bitcoin's cost in physics, and there's no other way to fake that, um, the game theory behind it is that they expend the proof of work in order to receive financial rewards in the form of the block reward, which is the block subsidy plus transaction fees. And so miners, because their future cash flows are where they generate their return from, are unlikely to try 51% attacks or they're unlikely to try to mess with certain types of transactions or try to reverse certain types or reorg chains because they will hurt their future cash flows because of that. Uh, because if confidence in the protocol is undermined, then they damage their future cash flows because the price might drop. Did you know all this stuff before you set out to write it? Yeah. So what's kind of nice is when you start to write and explain things, it helps you better articulate and understand the problem and answer itself. So uh, I, the way that I construct, construct most of my articles is it's about a three to four month process. And I start by copy pasting tweets, uh, medium article content that I read. So I kind of start by going, a wide, go, going across a wide swath of uh, research done before me. I pull that all together, what I find valuable. And then I reach out to a lot of people who've talked about it and ask them if they have any suggestions. So that I start with that. That slowly, that content slowly moves into um, structure. So I start to get a more complete picture and I'm like, okay, well, this section has to go before this one. And wait a second, I don't cover this, which leaves kind of a gaping hole in my argument. And so I go ahead and, and structure it to have a good flow and as well to be comprehensive and attack all sides. Um, at Uber, when you had to communicate with many different stakeholders, the way that we thought about that internally was you don't want them to find a thread that they can pull on and, and, and with that thread unravel your argument. So uh, usually I'll zoom out and zoom back in and zoom out and zoom back in to make sure that everything's been touched on to where if they have a counter like, wait, did you think about this? It's addressed and then I'll be like, yes, it's addressed in the article. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a three to four month process, you know, just Sunday afternoon, spending like an hour or two on it. And then I had to work with a data scientist to tr plot out future projections, which are very, very much projections that are, have, have a bunch of assumptions plugged in. Yeah. And can you talk more about the data scientist who helped? Yeah, he, uh, he did some really cool charts plotting Bitcoin's logarithmic price curve. He's got some great design aesthetics and the projections that I needed were very primitive. Uh, this didn't require, this wasn't really, <laughs> you don't really need a data scientist for it. I, I built it in Excel, but I wanted it to look a little bit nicer and also doing future projections were a little bit difficult. So essentially I wanted to look at what happens over time as the block subsidy runs out, will transaction fees compensate in return and fill up the reward and the block reward to compensate for the the production of new Bitcoin slowly dropping over time, or not slowly dropping, but dropping in half every halving event. Yeah, and that goes back to my next question. Can you explain what the halving is? So the halving every four years, the number of new Bitcoins being printed per block drops in half. And printed is the same thing as minted. And so over time, the number of Bitcoins produced will eventually reach a hard cap of approximately 21 million. And at 21 million, uh, essentially all new production of Bitcoins will stop. And those Bitcoins are produced or minted per block and that's called the block subsidy. And so as new Bitcoins are being produced, they were produced more often or they were minted more 
in greater quantities in the earlier days of Bitcoin's development. And since that number of newly minted Bitcoins drops in half every four years, the number is exponentially decreasing. Why do you think Satoshi planned it to happen every four years? Is there any significance to that? Some people think that there's a certain engineering reason why he did that. Other engineers claim that like a smoother supply curve would have been more logical. You know, I personally believe that he understood that having events may actually create bubbles uh, because he actually comments about this. Satoshi says, as the number of users grow, the value per coin increases. It has the potential for a positive feedback loop. As users, as users increase, the value goes up, which could attract more users to, to take advantage of the increasing value. Satoshi understood basic human greedy behavior. And he understood that speculative bubbles, that statement I think very definitively shows that he understood speculative bubbles bring in new ways of adherence or believers or hodlers or users. Mm -hmm. And so halving events create something called a supply shock. So Bitcoin miners receive the, the halving, or sorry, Bitcoin miners receive the block reward when they expend the proof of work. And they usually need to sell that pretty quickly because their expenses for electricity and their uh, original hardware is rooted in the physical world. So they need to sell that in order to uh, pay for their operations. So that means that there's a, a, a certain percentage of Bitcoins that are have, have to be forced to sold every day. And so any market out there, the price of any asset in the world is dictated by supply and demand. If supply and demand stay the same, the price stays, price stays level. If demand increases, the, the price goes up. If supply increases, the price goes down. So this simply kind of plays on that, that as well, is as the, the flow of new Bitcoins or as the newly minted Bitcoins keeps dropping, if demand stays the same or increases, the price slowly starts to trickle up, which causes a new boom cycle. And I have a chart shared by Coinmetrics where if we, if we look at the first and second happenings, uh, there was about a year later we see, uh, you know, happening sort of mark the beginning of the new, bear, uh, the new bull market. And certainly some individuals will say, hey, well, we only have two data points. That's not enough. Well, fuck, you know, once we have 20 data points, it's already too late to really like action on that. Yeah. Um, of course, data is the problem. Data is always the problem with any projection because we can't predict the future. But there's certainly qualitative and quantitative reasons why we can believe that the happening events will create speculative bubbles. We're not just like looking at two data points and extrapolating that. We're looking at basic human behavior and why they would do that. And then we also see two examples of it working. I imagine your research has sort of made you pour over all of Satoshi's communication through email and forums. And I was just wondering, is there any one quote by Satoshi about Bitcoin security that sort of stands out as the hallmark of what you think he was thinking? Yeah, I mean, that's why I like going, you know, look, I, I, I'm not like a Satoshi worshiper. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it is cool to see how far ahead he was thinking. That's why I go back to some of his quotes is a lot of people are like, oh, Satoshi had no idea this was going to happen or that was going to happen. Or oh, it's oh, coincidence and accidental, like Satoshi planting Bitcoin in the middle of the financial crisis. Oh, he just shit it out <laughs> in the middle, right? Yeah. And I'm like, man, I feel like that's being really disingenuous with like his intention because we've seen so many of his actions be very, very, he's very cognizant of what he says and how he says things and, and when things were done and how they were done. So I think it's at least fun to look back and see, okay, what did Satoshi think about this? And then like use that as one tiny part of the overall narrative, right? 
it just adds a bit more color. So in, in typical fashion, he, I think he had like a very, I think kind of funny quote. I guess I've been reading this shit so long. I think stuff's kind of funny now. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, he goes, I'm sure that in 20 years, there will either be very large transaction volume or no volume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's right. He's right. If, if there isn't a lot, then the network's dead anyways, and the security would be dead. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. But if, if, if there's large amounts of value being transferred and people willingly pay transaction fees to move large values, then it will have enough security. It's sort of like, it's sort of like a big nothing burger. The TLDR of the whole security budget argument is that if people aren't using Bitcoin, then it's dead. If people are using it, they're paying transaction fees, which will compensate the miners. That's it. And that's, that's the core root of it all. I'm still thinking about that quote. Uh, it's pretty funny. We're either winners or we're losers, which is pretty true in life, I guess. But towards the end of the essay, you lay out future opportunities for Bitcoin after the block subsidy lowers, and most of the network is running off of transaction fees. Can you sort of explain that section to us? Yeah, no problem. So, uh, you know, the basic argument here is that as the block subsidy exponentially decreases or the newly minted coins exponentially decrease, transaction fees eventually have to compensate to replace the block, the, the block subsidy. So after every single halvening event, when the block subsidy drops in half, we've seen exponential increases in the amount of users and the amount of transactions on the Bitcoin network. So we see this sort of organic trade-off between the block subsidy dropping, that causing speculative bubbles, speculative bubbles bring in more transactions, which brings in more transaction fees. So that's, we've seen a very, very good sign of these, these huge waves of uh, transactions coming in after each Bitcoin speculative bubble due to the increased usage of the network. So what I wanted to do was talk about in the future, you know, what is the price elasticity or the sort of sensitivity that a transactor on Bitcoin's layer one would have to send a Bitcoin. So over time, transaction fees will go up for the Bitcoin network. And sort of like Yogi Berra says, uh, you know, no one goes there, it's too, it's too crowded. Well, if Bitcoin's popular and people are using the network, they're using it for a reason. They're using it because of the thermodynamic guarantee that your payment won't be reversed or your large, uh, your large value that you transact won't be reversed. Mm-hmm. So um, transaction fees will go up. And I wanted to look at in the future, what would someone be willing to pay to send a Bitcoin transaction? Because again, using the, the cryptocurrency misnomer, people are like, oh my God, it's five cents. That's expensive. And you're like, well, yeah, sure. Because your credit card is zero. And they're like, oh, well, credit cards have baked in fees. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't matter because consumers don't care about that. Consumers don't see that fee. So any fee on any cryptocurrency network is too high because people don't, don't have to pay for a transaction fee when they use cash or credit card. Uh, it, or it's very, very infrequent. Mm-hmm. So one, I think that's like an expectation that we need to set. And the cryptocurrency misnomer has totally misaligned that expectation. But if we look at, if we look at large value transfers or other store value assets, then Bitcoin's transaction, transaction fees are well within the price elasticity of a transactor. And so let's start with wiring fiat dollars in, in the United States. The average domestic wire is 30 to $40 and 65 to $80 for international. I mean, 
that is that is many magnitudes higher than we are with Bitcoin's transaction fees. And people wire fiat money every day all across the U.S. and the world. So consumers are more than happy to pay that transaction fee. Now, offshore banking, which is a $7 trillion market, the average setup fee for an offshore bank account is between uh, like 2000 and 3700 uh, 3, So just to set up a bank account overseas, to, then and then they're paying $80 per wire, they, they set that up just to uh, store their value. And then the real estate market, which is a $250 trillion market, Chinese buyers buy on average $30 billion of US real estate annually, and they spend on average of $440,000 per purchase. If you look at the average closing cost of a home, we're talking thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that they pay just to park their money into a piece of property, which, oh, by the way, that property has maintenance costs and taxes as well, which I didn't include in my analysis. So just to park their money and store their value in U.S. real estate, they're willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars on average. So I'm sure they're fine with paying a $50 Bitcoin transaction fee in the future. Then as well, you also have physical gold delivery. Well, we can look at big value transfers, which was a $12 billion one from the New York Fed to the, uh, the Bundesbank in Frankfurt. It took three years and it cost $5 million. <laughs> so, you know, the price elasticity for large, large or value, you know, large size payments, which I would say like is, you know, a thousand plus dollars is very, very high. Um, and then also, you know, physical gold delivery for like just a consumer when you're buying like gold coins online, you've got all sorts of insurance and, and extra types of shipping and the, and the weight. And, you know, if you're, if you're buying a lot of gold, you might have to go get an armored car and physical protection. So Bitcoin's transaction fees, expen it, when Bitcoin's transaction fees increase, even if they exponentially increase from here, consumers will still transact and users will still transact on Bitcoin's layer one because we've seen that their price elasticity for other transactors with other stores of value are much, much higher. You mentioned layer two scaling. So I want to address the unpopular opinion that lightning payments right out of the gate will have liquidity problems. Again, I've never used lightning payments, so I don't have firsthand experience. I was sort of wondering if you had an opinion on this. Yeah. No, it's always good that we crit constantly criticize the user experience in the cryptocurrency space, especially with Bitcoin. I think there's been a lot of negligence over the last eight years where user experience had to be a thing to where we're still very much in the dark ages. Um, let, let's, let's, all, let's all think about the first time we sent a Bitcoin transaction. It's fucking scary. I mean, A, I'm copy pasting a long string of <laughs> numbers and letters and I'm like I don't know what the hell these things mean I'm copy pasting that you know to a website I'm double checking that I copy pasted it right or you know, <laughs> on my ledger or something and you're copy pasting that and then it's like transaction fee and, and remember like the first time you're you're a consumer you're like what the fuck is a transaction fee <laughs> I mean, yeah I, I guess and then there's no explanation as to like oh well if you pay less it'll just take longer if you pay more it'll happen now like the user experience around fees alone for across all blockchains is terrible. Um, and then you're like, uh, oh, unconfirmed shit. Did I send it to the wrong address? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like unconfirmed is six hours. That's terrible language to use. It should say processing or propagated or something else. 
I actually worked with Dan Elitzer, the head of the, the, the blockchain design team over at IDEO, um, and a few, uh, and then Connie Yang, the head of design at Coinbase, and Matt, uh, Matt Storis, the head of design at 21Co. We had a few working group meetings talking about these kind of standard, standard design patterns that should be across all wallets. Um, and so, yeah, like, okay, so user experience using Bitcoin on layer one is terrible. So people claiming that layer two is worse, I'm like, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> it really couldn't get any worse than layer one. Um, it's pretty bad. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, and then, you know, when was the last time we expected everyone in the world to understand how like the ACH system worked, how their payments routed? Like, as long as it gets there and it gets there reasonably, and it works most of the time, then people are pretty happy. So yeah, Lightning has a ton of user experience hurdles to jump through. I think they'll solve most of them. I will caveat this with, with light, that Lightning does not solve the volatility problem, and that will fundamentally be a roadblock to any adoption of any cryptocurrency in the world, uh, including Bitcoins, because the volatility will, if it's higher than the local currency, then users aren't gonna want to store money that, that, that they're gonna use for daily purchases because they're constantly, constantly gonna have to reevaluate their purchasing power on like a day-by-day -day basis. In its early stage, what do you see as the fundamental use case for Lightning payments? There's a natural trade-off um, on the core protocol level where the transaction fees for Bitcoin is based on bytes. So the transaction size in bytes or data size. And then the transaction fees on layer two for Lightning are based on the value that you're transferring. So there's a natural organic trade-off between the two to where there's eventually going to be payment sizes that you'll always use layer one for, um, just based on the cost, cost uh, sort of cost uh, crossover. Um, you know, I see Lightning being, being super utilized between, like Lightning is still massively successful, even if it's only used between custodial counterparties. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's not what I'm advocating for or projecting, but it's still massively successful if like, what if Binance and Coinbase open up a Lightning channel? And all of a sudden, like that reduces, you know, 5% of transactions on, on layer one because Coinbase and, and uh, other custodians can, exchanges can go really fast back and forth uh, and enables, you know, enables a whole new set of arbitrage out there. And that's, that's just like use case number one, right? Yeah. Like that, one, that one to me is like the clearest, easiest kind of like one to do now. Um, Later down the road, there's a lot of other cool use cases, but I think trading fundamentally or speculation is the number one use case for Bitcoin and majority of the crypto assets for the next decade. Um, and so I see that that the first utilization of the Lightning Network is probably around trading infrastructure uh, between uh, different exchanges. So Dan, uh, before this interview, we asked you to send us two different tweets for us to unpack on the show. And we asked you for a tweet by someone else that you wanted to talk about and then a tweet of your own that you wanted to discuss. So can we start with unpacking, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, can we start with unpacking the tweet from someone else, Sam Pat? Can you tell us why you chose that one? Yeah. So I wrote a tweet storm that um, basically said, hey, look, Satoshi's original intent is kind of stupid because we are where we are now. But one side continues to cherry pick sentences from the white paper, like the word cash, and claim it as the moral superiority of their protocol, AKA Bcash. Uh, Bcash going, hey, well, so look, Satoshi said cash in the white paper that gives us the moral authority because we have original intent. And I'm like, actually, that's not correct. So 
my tweet storm was a repudiation of that very tired old narrative. Uh, and which, by the way, I start with the first sentence saying the original intent doesn't matter. Um, Sam, Sam got really triggered by that because Sam is a, uh, at a, I don't know how they're still around, uh, but it's a startup called Open Bazaar, which is like a really lame uh, marketplace uh, product that came out in like 14, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Little to no traction. I, I would assume no traction. Um, you know, I repeatedly asked Sam how much stuff he buys on Open Bazaar himself, and he refuses to answer. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? And so he's one of the old remaining B cashers that is kind of a denialist um, in terms of what happened in 2017 and has kind of refused to let Bitcoin become digital gold. So he wrote a tweet storm to my tweet storm, uh, which he's like some, and, and the way he started his was he said, um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was always meant for payments. Anyone claiming otherwise um, is, is intentionally trying to de deceive and change history. So I would like to note the, the distinctive start between our two tweet storms are very different. Mine was that the original intent doesn't matter one side insists on using this to, to give themselves credibility. And his was, Dan's wrong and we're still right, which kind of goes back to my original point, right? So yeah, he, he went out to the, it was a very bizarre sort of, uh, which I, I guess I have to have a, a, it was a rebuttal to the tweet storm, which was a rebuttal to my tweet storm. But uh, I, you know, I think, you know, he, for example, creates a kind of a weird scoring system where he adds points together to calculate Satoshi's intent, but you can't give rounded numbers of points to like different statements because they're weighted differently and different statements mean different things. So it's kind of like Roger Veer's chart where he has like two columns and one's Bitcoin and one's Bitcoin cash and he gives like the Bitcoin cash one all these check marks. That's sort of what Sam set up. So I found that kind of bizarre. Um, it, you know, plus one props for him for making it like simple. And, and some people are some like people who aren't that intelligent will use that chart and propagate it because they'll be like, look, points. Um, <laughs> so I found that to be dubious uh, to just artificially weight everything. And then as well, Sam, of course, uses around 10 comments around Bitcoin being used for micropayments as, as tallies for the payment side. But of course, leaves out a statement from Satoshi that says, Bitcoin isn't made for micropayments at this stage. <laughs> so um, or, or Satoshi says Bitcoin doesn't work for micropayments. And yeah. also Satoshi hard, hard coded in a 0 0.01 transaction fee, which automatically <laughs> back in the earlier days of Bitcoin automatically rejects any micropayment sort of narrative. Um, so that was kind of silly. And then finally, like Sam ignores as well. Um, I, I want to call this out because you know, I find this again, just really intellectually dishonest on their side. I was the first person to ever look holistically. So I looked across the white paper, all of his writing, his timing, uh, timing being the financial crisis, uh, his comments on the blockchain, his only comment ever on the blockchain, uh, his peer-to-peer -peer foundation profile, and the background on the cypherpunks. That's where I got my opinion from they simply keep focusing on things that reinforce theirs. Um, so I'd like to call that out because Sam again does this in his rebuttal where Sam leaves out anything around timing that Satoshi possibly might've meant for Bitcoin to be, to replace his central banking system. Like so he leaves that out conveniently that Satoshi planted Bitcoin in the middle of a financial crisis. And so I, I find that 
extremely dishonest. Uh, and then he also ignores that Satoshi's birth date on his peer-to-peer -peer foundation profile, that the year is the year that gold was allowed back in the United States or gold ownership was allowed again. And that his birth date was the date that Bitcoin ownership was banned or sorry, uh, that gold ownership was banned. So like you leave, he's leaving out some incredibly important details um, that conveniently would have debunked a lot of his, his narrative. Uh, whereas I zoomed out all the way and looked across all the potential types of data that we can ingest to, to kind of form our opinion. And that's how I created mine. So then we asked you to send us your most infamous tweet and I kind of see a connection. Yeah. So yeah, the tweet is, you know, 2013 Bitcoin's too expensive, 2014 Bitcoin's too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, after Bitcoin broke a dollar price parity, it became too expensive in the mind of a consumer because their minds typically go around price point. You know, when they look at like stocks, like sh uh, shares of stock, um, they typically think of it per unit cost versus market cap, which market cap is the only metric you should really care about because market cap is the entirety of all. You, get, you can have a billion shares or a million shares. The, the, pr the price per share is meaningless. Um, it just depends on how many shares are outstanding, right? So after Bitcoin broke dollar parity, again, the misnomer of it called, being called cryptocurrency, uh, uh, if it was called like crypto gold, it would have been way different. Uh, instead, we've had to fight this narrative for the entire existence. But because it's called cryptocurrency and it broke dollar parity, it seems expensive because of the per unit uh, problem. Uh, which if I were to fault Satoshi with one thing, it's where it's the thing I would fault him with is where he put the decimal because that decimal forever created this sort of perception that Bitcoin might be too expensive and most consumers don't think they can buy part of one. Mm -hmm. uh, so my tweet storm was kind of a, a joke on that, that Bitcoin has always been too expensive uh, due to the kind of breaking that dollar parity. And also, you know, if someone doesn't believe in something, they're going to make excuses not to buy it. Oh, it's too expensive. Well, you didn't, I'd buy it if it went back down to a thousand again, bullshit. You definitely wouldn't buy it if it went down to a thousand and you've heard about it for seven years and you still haven't bought it. Uh, so it's sort of a, a parody on that as well, which is that people claim it's too expensive and they would, they would, they would buy it if it's cheaper, but they're never going to. And it's because the, the price of Bitcoin is the, is the total aggregate kind of shared belief in what its value should be. Um, they just still don't believe it's valuable at all. And any price is too expensive. Yeah, yeah. And I think to tie it back to Sam, who in their right fucking mind would want to buy a fucking coffee that requires a higher transaction fee, a higher volatility fee, which means the time in which you bought Bitcoin, held it, and then sold it for that coffee, uh, and the exchange fee, because you can't buy Bitcoin without at least being charged 10 bips on the trade. Mm-hmm. And that, though, by the way, BIPs and volatility fee scale with the size of the transaction, so which is terrible. It makes it a terrible way to pay for coffee because if you do many different payments and the aggregate value is ten hundred dollars, and there's a ten percent fluctuation in price, you're paying ten dollars in transaction fee plus the transaction fee plus the exchange fee. Anyway, so that plus, if Satoshi really wanted people to spend their coins, he would have made Bitcoin inflationary but he made it deflationary. So who in the right mind wants to spend a, a hard capped 
currency or hard capped store of value digital gold that has only exponentially increased over time. Why would anyone do that? Do you, I mean, do you think that people could use it for like bigger payments, like a, like a car or a house or something? Yeah. yeah just, like, just like wires, right? Like you only do wire, you only wire payments for like really big payments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. And then I think lightning unlocks the additional value of Bitcoin being used in a more transactional level if you choose to do so. I mean, by the way, I'm not prescriptive here. I'm more descriptive to where if someone wants to waste their money buying coffee, go ahead. I don't give a shit. Like it's a permissionless network. But it's also I've regretted every single purchase I've ever made. Do you have any past Bitcoin purchases you want to confess? I've got a hundred Bitcoin purchase back in the day that I'm that I dwell on often. Ooh. What did you buy? <laughs> uh special things. Yeah. Touche. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, <laughs> yeah, let's put it this way. I've never once spent my Bitcoin and been like, oh fuck yeah, that was a great purchase. Yeah. I mean, it was more of like, you know, and then people go, oh, you can spend and replace. No, that's also a terrible idea because if you spend and replace, you still have capital gains tax. I I guess that's why I don't like it either is because I had to go account for all of those like little coffee and hamburger purchases we were doing in 13 and 14 to be cute. And I'm like, oh man, this is such a pain in the ass. And then I'm like, ah, I can't believe I spent the whole Bitcoin on like a hamburger or something. I'm like, ah, shit. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's my experience doing it. It's my experience building it at ChangeChip and blockchain.com and seeing consumers interact with it. So it's all of those experiences together. And then as well, being at Uber and putting on like a, a consumer centric hat where you look at how they interact with products in India and China and Southeast Asia and, and in Africa. And you look at these videos where we took videos of people interacting with the app and seeing how they interact with it. And you're like, wow. Uh, user experience is huge. We should be really empathetic towards what that experience is like when they use Bitcoin and just going, oh, dude, you should totally use this because it's sound money, I think is ridiculous. And I'm the biggest proponent of this. And you guys know I love Bitcoin. But we're continually disappointing new potential users of Bitcoin when we frame it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, people are like, oh, well, there's no no harm, no foul if people used it, you know, for coffee. I'm like, actually, we might've lost tens or hundreds of millions of potential hodlers because they saw you do a shitty coffee payment and they're like, this sucks. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's like take 10 minutes you're sitting around, you pay a transaction fee and it's like a super awkward experience when you have to ask the manager to pay for something. Dan, b- before we started recording, uh, you mentioned that you took a trip to Munich. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So that was really cool. And, uh, you know, really appreciate Daniel Vogel putting this all together. Uh, so what he did is he kind of he wanted a really professional environment for investment bankers and central bankers to talk to individuals who really understand Bitcoin. Um, some people call that Bitcoin economist. I I feel kind of weird using that term personally because uh, I don't really consider myself an economist. I, I see it. I mean, you're yeah. I I appreciate that, but I don't want to go too far with my my knowledge. <laughs> I understand yeah. Bitcoin really well, but in terms of yeah, I know, I know, I know Bitcoin's incentives very well. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I felt felt like it was a really refreshing and open conversation where uh, each panel was only twenty, or each uh, talk was only twenty minutes, was which was nice and and, and kept up a very high cadence. Uh, and then as well, there was an early happy hour because in Germany, I guess even at 
banks, they have beer at 3 p.m., which I thought was really cool. Uh, definitely opened people up a little bit. And I think people became like a little bit more open to talking and, and going, hey, that really challenged my thinking. That was that was cool. Um, and then we saw some glimmers of, you know, some of the central bankers understand uh, some of the core parts of, of what makes Bitcoin valuable. And I, I can't name who it was, but uh, they one central banker came up to us and said, you know, my uh, my religion is bigger than yours. And I think I think that's that's really cool because that's the core fundamental part of this all, which is faith. It's either faith in mathematics and physics, which is Bitcoin, or faith in people, which is the current financial system. Mic drop. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Man. That's so cool that you had that experience. Yeah, it, it was fun, and uh, you know, at the dinner after as well. I had some some really great chats with individuals. That I my my uh, talk was on Bitcoin's proof of work, and so in Germany right now, there's a politician who's very anti-Bitcoin because of its energy consumption, and I, I felt that it was important that they understood. Uh, the conference organizer Daniel did a really good job of structuring the content. Uh, first, I went, and then Alex DeVries, which I'm not sure if you guys know of him, but he's the um, pseudoscientific researcher who came up with the Bitcoin is boiling the oceans narrative. Uh. Yeah. Which has been quoted everywhere. So he went after me and then we debated. So that was, I think a really cool format because they could get both sides of the argument and then hear us both talk about it um, against each other. And we kind of, we did, we made a little bit, uh, we made it kind of fun where we had the moderator get in between us and pretend like we were, you know, going to be aggressive or something, but uh, <laughs> He, yeah, Alex was a good sport about it, and uh, I thought I thought it went really well. Would you ever uh, debate Sam Pat? Yeah, absolutely. I've debated uh, two different proof of work um, critics, which was Alex DeVries and David Gerard. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've done one live, one uh, one live, not live, but via via podcast. So yeah, I'd be happy to hop on and, and talk to Sam. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. We, we've, again, we've taken way too much of your time. So. <laughs> all good. All good. Are you guys going to be out here in uh, San Francisco? We will. Yeah. We'll, we'll see you then. Well, we'll have to have a beer and talk about it in person. Definitely. Oh, for sure. We should do the 3 p.m. Uh, Germany uh, kind, of, kind of drinking thing. That, that sounded pretty nice. Or a little Oktoberfest. Yeah. You know, I think it made the conference a little bit more fun. I feel like the speakers are definitely more energetic. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> debates would be way more fun yeah exactly exactly but yeah thanks for having me guys had a good time chatting and uh see you guys when you get out of here yeah take care dan awesome thanks dan all right bye, bye. Thanks again for listening to the show. We'll be in San Francisco for the Bitcoin 2019 conference, and we hope to see you there. Come by, say hello, and maybe we'll grab a drink. Or two. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media-produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Today's episode was produced by myself and Dave. The stories of this episode come from articles written by the Bitcoin Magazine staff, including Peter Chwaga, Colin Harper, Jimmy Ackie, Landon Manning, and Aaron Van Weirdham. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. Special thanks to our guests Dan Held and Satoshi Nakamoto. We're eternally grateful. Indeed. Thanks again, Dan, for coming on again. (laughs) 
Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes and news. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. And if you've got the time, please leave us a review. You know how much it helps and it helps us find new listeners and everything is just generally better. It's a great world when you leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.